This week, we'll talk about technical writing and data journalism. We have a special guest today, Angelica. Angelica is a researcher at the Institute of Informatics and Telematics in Italy. Her research interests include data science, machine learning, text analytics, data visualization, data journalism, web applications, and recently she became also interested in data engineering. She's also a professor at the University of Pisa, where she teaches data journalism. Welcome, Angelica. Hi, nice to meet you. It's, uh, for me, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for <laughs> accepting the invite to be here. I also want to mention that the questions for today's interview are prepared by Johanna Bayer. Thanks, Johanna, for preparing the questions. And Angelica, before we go into our main topic of writing and data journalism, I wanted to ask you about your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yes. Since I was a teenager, my big dream was to become a computer scientist because I had a computer. This was the late 90 period. And I decided to understand how a computer works. And so my dream continued. And at the university, I studied computer science. Then I devoted all my career to the research field. And in fact, now I'm a researcher. At the beginning, I worked in network security with a focus on cryptography, reputation, similar stuff. I got my PhD on this field. But after my PhD, I realized that web applications were more appealing to me than computer security. So I moved to this field. Uh, next, I landed in data science and I worked on data science projects for many years. Only recently, I'm moving to data engineering because I like to explore new things. And as you can see, my career is slightly different than that of other people because I always remained in the research field. I changed only uh, the topic uh, which uh, I studied. And for me, uh, I can see I'm a privileged person because uh, I can decide the topic to study. And this is a very interesting aspect of uh, academia and uh, research. Just curious, what are you researching now in data engineering? Because to me, like it looks like an engineering topic there more like practical you know it's more like about know-how less about research yes but maybe i'm a bit far from that so i'm really curious what kind of research topics are there in data engineering yes indeed i'm studying the topic and so i don't know if i will have an idea how to improve something but given my expertise a possible idea could be to add some security aspects to data maybe how to recognize uh, if uh, data are uh, manipulated or something like this. I don't know. I'm studying the topic and at the moment I'm also writing a, a book about this topic. And so uh, we will see. <laughs> okay. And that's quite on topic to today's conversation, right? <laughs> writing. Yes. So you are learning data engineering by writing a book about that. Yes. That's quite a good way to learn something. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and uh, you already have a few books, right? So you have at least one that I know of, which is Comet for Data Science. Yes. Have you written any other books? 
In the past, I've written uh, some novels, but I was uh, very young. Some um, novels, uh, short tales, but uh, nothing interesting. And now I'm writing a book about uh, uh, Presto, the database, uh, the very famous uh, database, uh, also by Meta. Mm -hmm. I think they changed the name recently, right? So it's not Presto anymore, but uh, is it Trineo or, or is it like different things? The original uh, name was Presto. Then they forked into two different databases, which are PrestoDB and the Trino. There are uh, two different projects uh, supported by two different uh, foundations. Ah, okay. Because I know at our company, at Elix, we used to use Presto. And then one day I connect to Presto and it says Trino. And I'm, okay, well, what happened? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then it's our data engineers, they updated the version and then they switched yes. from to Trino. They are quite similar, but derived from uh, two different organizations. Mm -hmm. I guess it's like LibreOffice and OpenOffice, right? So they had the same <laughs> history, but then at some point they branched out. Yeah, I think so. One of the topics I wanted to talk to you about is data journalism. So I know okay. that uh, this is one of your research interests and uh, you're also a professor at the University of Pisa, right, where you teach this. Yes. So what is data journalism? Yes, data journalism is uh, data-driven journalism in the sense that, uh, similar to any data science projects, it collects, analyzes, uh, filters data to create uh, interesting stories. Data journalism is slightly different from data storytelling or data narrative, which are other fields, because data storytelling, for example, is the art of telling stories from data. They could seem the same thing, but they are not, because the objective of data journalism is to tell news and to use data to confirm the story they are uh, telling. Uh, so, for example, you can see long uh, articles which talk about something, and then uh, they use uh, data to confirm the story which is uh, narrated. In addition, with respect, for example, to data science, which is another aspect, in journalism story, usually you don't have the analysis part, which is the big part in data science. Usually you don't use machine learning or in general data analysis the models. You don't train a model in data journalism. The huge part is to build a storyboard and to collect data. And um, while in data science uh, you use big data, yes, Data science, usually you use big data. In data journalism, you focus also on small data sets because the idea is to have accurate information and you have to tell the truth and you cannot approximate things. For example, if you train a model, data science um, or in machine learning, this model has an accuracy, for example, of 80%, while in a data journalism, you have to say a true news. You cannot have an accuracy of 80%, it should be of 50%. 
And uh, this is uh, the main uh, difference. There are also other differences, but to give an overview, this is uh, the first aspect. Okay, can you give an example? Like, I don't know, like the articles I'm reading in uh, Economist or like these journals or newspapers, are they doing data journalism or is it just visual journalism? No, I'm not. Uh, in general, I'd say my students to build data journalism stories, but in practice, I, I don't write my data journalism stories. I help my students to build their stories, they, to collect their data. There are many websites. For example, one interesting website is the Washington Post. Mm-hmm website if you go uh, search on the on the web uh, on google uh, washington post uh, data journalism you you find the their uh, group their laboratory they write wonderful stories and you can uh, learn uh, how to organize a story but usually almost all the newspapers have a dedicated data journalism laboratory, very specific. So it's not about fact-checking, right? So it's different. It's more like supporting your arguments with data. Yes. So I'm just trying to think of an example. Can you think of anything, like something you read maybe recently? Like, I don't know, I know that Musk bought Twitter. Like, have you seen any stories about that that are good examples of data journalism? Yes, for example, there was an article by uh, the Washington Post which talked about the barriers that the walls that were were built in 2015 to uh, avoid that uh, migrants went from the southeast Asia to Europe. And they used some uh, data to show how to some graphs also in visualizations to show how this process happened across the years. And um, I don't know, uh, if you want, then after I can send you the link, but at the moment I don't have it. But it's very, a very impressive story. Other uh, stories analyze, for example, how oppressors in some lands using the, the lens to oppress the local people to build uh, uh, coffee plants and similar stuff. And they use the data to prove their stories. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So yeah, please do send the link. It would be quite interesting to take a look. So what I understood, the main difference between usual journalism and data journalism is in the usual journalism, you have a story, but it's not necessarily based on the data right so you you just present some facts but uh, you don't show diagrams you don't show graphs yes. you don't show anything to support the story right by while in data journalism you have some data source you have some data visualization and then you base your story on the this data right yes i think that the most challenging aspect in data journalism is to search for data because uh, uh, data are uh, hidden on the web and the data journalists uh, must uh, discover them. Uh, instead, for example, in data science, you already have data. Your company provides you with uh, your data. 
And so you have to analyze them. In data journalism, you have to search for new data. Also, small data is not important to have big data. And the most important aspect is the data should be uh, accurate as much as possible. Otherwise, you deliver uh, fake news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you get into data journalism? Is it something that you started your career with or is it something that accidentally happened to you? Because I think you mentioned that you actually research cryptography, right? Yes. So then from doing cryptography, how did you end up doing data journalism? They are quite unrelated, right? Or are they? No, 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 they are not related. Uh, when I moved to web applications, my boss asked me to start a course about web applications. And uh, we started this course at the university. But then he had this smart idea to change the course to data journalism. I don't know why. They are not related, right? <laughs> no, not related. You just said, okay, let's change to a completely random yeah. different topic? Yes, because he understood that web applications became too old. I don't know. And he decided to involve me in this new topic. Interesting. Yes, I accepted, but I was surprised by his choice. But usually he does good choice and I accepted it. I think that he was right because... I like this uh, course. Over the years, uh, the course has improved also thanks to the feedback provided by students because here at the University of Pisa, there is a mechanism where every year uh, students provide the feedback about each professor and how the course uh, must be improved. And over the years, we have uh, improved uh, this. We we are still improving it, but... Uh, I think now it's uh, quite mature. Mm-hmm. And who are the students? For which kind of students this course is? Is it for technical students, for students who study computer science and want to learn more about journalism, or it's for those who are studying, I don't know, less technical topics and want to get into data? They are in a particular area because they are humanists with a background in computer science. They study digital humanities and they have knowledge both of humanities and computer science. It's a new course which is not everywhere in the, at least in Italy, it's not everywhere. The name is Humanistic Informatic. That's pretty interesting. To be honest, this is the first time I hear about such concepts. Yes. Uh, this profile is uh, very required in the digital humanities field, for example, uh, to work on archives, uh, on cultural heritage, uh, digital collections, and uh, similar stuff. How technical is this? Because I think from your description, you need to be a good writer to write uh, the story. Like the story has to be there, right? But how technical should you be in addition to, you know, being a good writer to be a data journalist? There are two options. You cannot uh, know anything about programming languages and uh, you can use tools like uh, Tableau. And uh, in this case, you don't use uh, anything. It's okay. 
Or if you have a technical background, usually the most popular programming language that you use is Python. But at a high level, you don't focus, for example, on heavy programming. Just you need to know how to clean some data, the, how to manipulate them. It's very easy. Everyone can do this. Yes. But the alternative could be Tableau, and so you don't need uh, at all the technical skill. Is the course in Italian or it's in English? In, in Italian. In Italian. Okay. Unfortunately, But it's in Italian. <laughs> do you know any other courses that are in English that are open? So let's say if I want to go and understand, learn more about data journalism, do you know any open courses that I can check? I don't know if it's open, but there is, I think, one course on Coursera. I can send you the link. Maybe you can share it with the community. But I don't know if it's still available. But it describes the aspects from a journalism point of view. It's also the books that I have read on data journalism Um, focus on journalism, and then uh, they describe uh, a little uh, data. Maybe a next book could be on uh, data journalism. Yeah. <laughs> But it's a very niche sector, so maybe there will not be a, an audience for uh, mm -hmm. this book. I don't know. But as I understood, the audience that you write for in data journalism is general public, right? So let's say you write an article for Washington Post. So then the readers for this article are just usual people, right? So they don't have to have a background in a specific area. It depends on the topic of your article, mm -hmm. because uh, if you uh, write uh, an article for Washington Post, yes, probably the general user is okay. But if you write an article for a children magazine, the audience uh, are children. And so you have to think about your audience before writing your article. But this is true also when you write a book, a technical book or an article. Before writing, you have to think about the audience. I think this is the first step. What does it mean? It means that you have to focus on the audience need. Do you know? who will read the, your book, who will read your article, what are their interests, which skills they have, and um, are you writing for a technical audience or not? And uh, this is a very important aspect before writing everything. Yeah, because uh, the reason I ask this question is I know that you do a lot of technical writing. I don't know how many articles you wrote on Medium, Like, must be hundreds by now, right? Uh, 170, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you're quite a prolific writer. So the articles I know that are from you, they are technical articles. Yes. So it's technical writing, which I guess is uh, quite different from the articles we've been talking so far, like data journalism, right? So would you say that data journalism is not technical writing? Yes, it's not a technical writing. It's for a general... Uh, audience and also the language you use. There is a, a variety of languages that you have to use. For example, if you write a scientific paper, you need to write in a certain 
way. If you write a technical book, you have to use another uh, language. If you write for data journalism, you have to write uh, another way. And so mm -hmm. you should focus on your audience. This is uh, a problem. So since the, we have kind of two topics, right? We have data journalism and we have technical writing. So we talked about data journalism. What is technical writing? So what makes writing technical? If we just add the code, does it become technical or there is more to that? Writing to be technical should talk about something technical. Mm -hmm. For example, how to set up something, how to perform a task, uh, how to do something. A technical writing is differs from, for example, a research article because a research article discusses some concepts. More from a theoretical point of view, you can still have some implementation parts, but they demonstrate how your ideas. In a technical writing, instead, I think that you describe how to solve a problem. For example, if you write a technical book, this book can be a reference, a manual, where you teach something. And also the language you use should be sure in the sense that if you say something, you cannot say, for example, you can do this. You have to say, do this, because mm -hmm. you are sure of what are you saying. And there are these differences. Yes. So let's say how to prepare environment for GPU. That would be a very technical article, right? Because yes. you have a sequence of steps and you have some screenshots, you have pieces of code, and then you just follow this. Yes. Right? I guess th this one is easier. But uh, like, let's say mm, if we talk about, I don't know, how to do data visualization. This is also technical, right? Because you walk the reader through like some guide, right? Some how to. Yes. Is it always like that? Like you, you just walk the reader through a sequence of things and show how to get to the result they need? No, you can also describe, you can uh, report something. Mm -hmm. I think uh, you can provide some examples uh, about something. In my book, I also, this uh, Comet for Data Science, I also describe some general concepts to give, uh, to introduce uh, the reader to some uh, concepts. Mm -hmm. Like what is machine learning, for example, right? Yes, for example, the general an overview, but it's different from a research article where you have to explain details about concepts. And then, sorry, another thing: the main difference between research articles and also technical articles is that in research articles you discover something new. You describe something new. In a technical article, instead, you describe existing things. Mm -hmm. So maybe you know there are companies like Stack Overflow that run surveys. Like every year, they ask people who are members of Stack Overflow about their interests, like about the tools they use, about the tools they want to use, they want to learn the tools they hate, like languages they hate, languages they love their salary and like it's quite a massive questionnaire. I don't know if you ever took part, but maybe you took part in similar ones. I think O'Reilly is doing this, 
there are quite a few companies that are doing this. And then at the end, so they collect this data, and then, I don't know, one, two months later, they release a report, like a PDF. So how would you classify this report? Is it data journalism? Is it uh, technical writing? Is it uh, data storytelling? Or what is that? It depends on how the report is written. If you only report data as they are, it's a report. Mm -hmm. If you extract a story from your data, it can become data storytelling or uh, also a data journalism story. Recently, I have also read a book about data storytelling, which used this example of uh, this report of uh, Stack Overflow, and they described how to transform uh, this raw data into a, a story. This was a case of uh, a self-published book. There is also the option to self-publish a book. And it was very, very interesting uh, uh, book. Maybe I can send you the, the title so you can share it with the, the community. So let's say we have this report, right? So if we just do, I don't know, basic data analysis, we aggregate data, we show the, all these pie charts, by charts, uh, bar charts, and uh, all these things, and then we put them in a PDF, and we say that, okay, this is the most popular language, this is the most hated language, this is how data scientists earn, this is just a report, right? Yes. So this, but if we, let's say, write an article about different programming languages, and we say that, okay, Java and C are the most popular programming languages. And then we add a chart that proves that, okay, this is based on this data set, right? And then we maybe talk about, I don't know, the story behind some of these programming languages. Then it would be more like data journalism, right? Yes. Um, instead, also, in addition to that, you to transform a report into a data journalism story, for example, you can add the context to your data. For example, in the case of, of programming languages, you can group data by the year, the how old are people answering to the questions. And you, you see, for example, that 80 generation likes Java. And now you can start searching why this category of people like more Java than the other languages. Maybe they studied the Java at the university and uh, so on. And here you transform your, uh, your uh, simple raw data into a story to extract, to add the context. And finally, the main objective when you want to transform your data into a story uh, is called uh, wisdom which is to attach to your data an uh, ethics, a message, a call to action to uh, your audience. Because the final uh, objective of uh, data storytelling, or in general, a data journalism story, is to call the audience to action. And this is not a report anymore, it's a story. Mm -hmm. And in the report, do we have call to action? Or could be, right? I got share it with your friends. It's not sufficient. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I guess companies, they usually do this to get some exposure, right? So the real uh, reason they are doing this is uh, like people start sharing it, they link to their websites so that there are more users. 
maybe the, in this case, the call to action in the previous example of Java people could be invite these people to learn Python because Python is uh, more uh, recent. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I see a comment in live chat from Adonis. So reports to your stakeholders can be classified as technical writing too. So Angelica, what do you think about this? Is it the correct observation? I think that it depends how to the report is built because I'm currently studying data storytelling. There are many books about them. Uh, one of the most popular is the storytelling with data by Cole Nakli. Klavlik, it's a very famous book, which says that when you talk to your stakeholders, you have to tell them stories and not just reports, because you have to invite them to take some decisions based on data, obviously. So I strongly encourage you to transform your sad and boring reports to data stories. Yeah, we have a question. So how to make sure that an article that you're writing has the right amount of data visualization? So it's not too much, not too little, just the right amount. I think that to explain a concept, maybe one graph is enough. So you have to use one concept per graph. So don't show many concepts in the same graph. Mm -hmm. It's very confusing. And then if you have to say many concepts, you need many charts. But I think that the, the audience get confused because the idea is to transmit just a single message. And all the graphs that you put in your report must be in accordance with this message. So don't feel that there are few graphs. Because the most important aspect of your report is not the amount of graphs, but the message that you want to transmit. I think that in some cases it's better a table than a graph because it's clearer. If you have a few, just two or three data, it's useless to use a, a graph. Pie chart, right? So, no. <laughs> <laughs> like a bar chart, like if you only have three data points like it. No. A chart will take simply too much space, right? I fight pie charts <laughs> with all my heart because I think that the pie chart, if there are many slices in the pie chart, you don't understand anything. If there are only two slices in your pie chart, it gives you the Pac-Man idea. I don't know if you know Pac-Man, uh, the character of some uh, video games. It seems that the greater part, the slice, wants to eat this, <laughs> this small one. <laughs> this has a negative effect on the audience. So don't use pie chart. So you mentioned one interesting thing. So a purpose for an article should be to convey a single message and all the visualizations you use all the charts should support this single message and since you wrote so many articles so many different articles did you say 170 yeah yes. so how long are these articles that you wrote usually like are they six minutes Long. Yes, five, six minutes. There are also on Medium some very long articles, about 15 minutes. 
to tell the truth, I don't have the time to write these long articles, mm-hmm. so I keep them uh, short. I also have started the publication on Medium, which is called the Syntax Error, but at the moment it's very small, uh, where the main objective is to uh, solve some problems uh, very shortly, like a stack overflow of uh, in Medium. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the in the Slack community, if someone wants to to write to participate to this uh, publication, they could uh, drop me a message, and I will be happy to add them to as a writer. Yeah, just share the link, and we will include this in the in the notes okay. in the description. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Can you walk us through the process of uh, creating an article? So you said that your articles are usually five, six minutes long, so they're super focused on conveying a single message. And I guess this is what you start, correct me if I'm, I'm mistaken, this is what you start your article with, right? Yes. Thinking of what this message could be. Yes, right? an overview of the topic. You start by giving an overview of the topic. Then you describe how you solve your problem. Usually I write technical articles which solve some problems, some common programming problems. And so I describe an example which solves the problem and then I give a summary. The structure is very simple. You could write something more complex, but in my case it's very simple. I also provide, I usually provide the code of the article in a separate uh, repository, which is uh, well appreciated on uh, GitHub. Small, but it's appreciated, yes. So then the the format, as I understood, so you first uh, you have a problem, and then you show the solution, and at the end uh, you talk about the results, right? And then in this format, you kind of come up with, I don't know, some outline, so you have this outline in this form, and then you th- add text, some code, yes, illustrations. Right? How many illustrations do you usually add? A general illustration at the beginning to capture the attention of the reader, and then maybe technical illustrations related to the problem to be solved. For example, if I need to draw a graph, I show the graph. Mm-hmm. So when do you think about illustrations? When uh, you have an outline, but you haven't started writing the article? Or at the end, you see, okay, there is just too much text. I need to add an article. Or how does it work usually for you? Mm-hmm. No, I, when I finish the, the topic, I stop the article. But if the article is too short, I try to extend it, for example, by extending the example or... Um, uh, or adding uh, new, extending the overview, adding some general concepts and uh, similar things. How do you find topics? Like you said, uh, usually you focus on a specific problem and then you show how to solve this specific problem. Where do you find these problems? Is it something, let's say, you are working on a particular thing and then you have this error? Yes. Is this your main source of inspiration or how? Usually I write on the problems that I personally have because I think that maybe they could be useful for uh, the community. But um, some other times I read on 
social networks like uh, LinkedIn uh, or uh, Twitter for new libraries, for example. I try to test them and then I write uh, now an article about uh, the topic. But most of the time uh, I take note of my problems and how, how I solve them. This is also for me a way to keep track of uh, how I solve uh, my problems. In fact, I'd like to suggest uh, the community also to take note of how they solve uh, their problems because we are used to search on uh, Google, but maybe if a problem comes uh, again twice or uh, three times, we need to search again on Google on the same problem. Instead, if you keep track of the problem by writing a, an article, we have the solution already available. And this is my strategy. Maybe after, I don't know, after uh, 10 months, I have the same problem. I exactly know how to solve it. Mm -hmm. So these articles that you write, they are very focused, very short, to the point. And then you also wrote a book. Right? And the book is not a five minutes read, right? So it's something more comprehensive. Like I have a lot of questions about the book, but maybe you can tell us like how did you end up writing a book? So you said you were writing some novels, right? But then yes. at some point you decided to write a technical book. So how did this happen? The situation uh, was slightly different because I didn't choose to write a book. Somebody forced you? <laughs> no, 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 no. My dream was, uh, since I was a child, to write a book, okay. But at some point, I received um, an email by an, an acquisition editor who asked me to write a book. I was uh, surprised by this. Maybe read my articles and they contacted me. And at the beginning, um, well, I didn't know if it was the best thing to do. But then I decided to accept, and then I wrote uh, this book. Also, he proposed me the topic, and so instead the topic was uh, proposed by them, by the publisher, I accepted that uh, the story is uh, this. But it wasn't like coming out of the blue, right? It was uh, something just related to some of the articles you wrote? You must have written an article about Comet for data science. That's why they thought of you. Yes, I wrote a, an article about Comet, an overview of Comet. I'm also a contributor of the Heartbeat publication, which is a publication by Comet. And so maybe they contacted me for this reason. Okay, interesting. So basically the recipe is you publish your articles on Medium, some other platforms, and then like publishers might reach out to you, right? So at least this is how it happened to you. Yes, I think that it could be a great strategy if you want to write something to build a portfolio of articles which show your capabilities and your writing skills. And maybe someone from the acquisition team of a, of a publisher can contact you. An alternative could be to contact directly an acquisition editor. For example, uh, I don't know, you go on LinkedIn, you search for a publisher and uh, you search for uh, the acquisition editor in the company, in the publisher, and you ask uh, them 
if you are interested in some books. Mm-hmm. So you approach them with a topic? Yes. Maybe you go to LinkedIn and you write packed acquisition editors or mining acquisition editors. And then you see some people and then you send them a connection request and you write, yes. okay, I'm interested in writing a book about Comet or I'm interested in writing a book about some specific topic. Right? And then they might say, okay, yeah, you know what? Let's actually write it, right? <laughs> yes. The alternative is the official way is to fill a form and send mm-hmm. the, the proposal. But in this case, I don't know, but you have uh, less chance to be accepted because you are one of uh, the thousands of people who send a book proposal. If you are uh, sponsored by an acquisition editor instead, I think that you have a higher probability to be accepted. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not an easy process. I know that because I also have written a couple of books So I'm curious, like, how did it actually happen? What was the process from the time, from the moment you got contacted by an acquisition editor to the point uh, when it was actually out in print? It was a long journey. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Very long. (laughs) Too long. It's another job. And um, from this first book, I learned uh, many things. And I'd like to share with you this. The first thing is to read carefully a contract before signing it. And I think the first step is to read, in particular, the timeline where the delivering process is defined. The publisher shares with you a possible timetable where you timeline where he says exactly when you have to deliver a chapter. And usually due to time to market reasons, the publisher expects a chapter every two weeks. Oh, that's very tight schedule. Yes, I have done this for the book Comet for Data Science, but I don't do this never. No. no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's just okay. Oh, but when when to sleep, right? When yes. to have life. And so if you can ask the publisher to extend this period at least four weeks, a chapter. And if a chapter requires more time, maybe because it requires many coding and so on, ask them also for uh, six weeks. Mm. I think that you should also add some uh, holidays period, some vacation period, because the contract uh, has a section where you can uh, insert this aspect. And then when everything is okay for you, you can start writing, assuming that you have already a table of contents Mm -hmm. and so on, a list of chapters. If you have to write a chapter every four weeks, in practice, you need to write a page a day. You Mm -hmm. have 28 days for each chapter. If you remove weekends, maybe you have, I don't know, 20 days, you can write a chapter of 20 pages only approaching one page per day, which is very easy. Mm-hmm. But even before that, even before you have a contract, so for a contract and the timeline you mentioned, you need to have actually feel the timeline. You need to know what are the milestones, right? What are the chapters? What are the sections? So I guess there is also a lot of work 
before this contact says, I don't know how it happened with you. I guess usually the acquisition managers, they come with, uh, I don't know, title. They say, okay, I have these titles. Which of them is interesting for you, right? And then you need to actually work on a, a proposal, right? How does it happen? Yes. Uh, first, you need to download the publisher's template. You have to fill it, but you have to tell the truth. You have to answer this question. Do I know the topic? Mm-hmm. Because if you don't know the topic, at least in general, don't write the book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a valid point, but I guess, like I was kind of under assumption that if you want to write a book, then you, you know it, <laughs> the topic. But it could be that you don't know the topic because maybe you work on machine learning and you want to write something about, uh, I don't know, TensorFlow. But mm-hmm. if you don't work on TensorFlow, don't write a book on TensorFlow. At least you must know an overall uh, overview of the topic. Then I think that before writing everything, you need to perform, to search for other book, other similar books. This is called in the research field, the state of the art. You need to see what is already available in the, in the market. Because if your book doesn't add anything about uh, with respect to the previous books, there is no sense to write it. It's called market research, right? Yes. Could be. I think I came across this. I don't know how publishers call it. Okay. Your point is that you, the book should be unique, at least in one aspect, right? So it shouldn't yes. be just a copy of another book, at least when it comes to table of content, right? Yes. And then once you have the topic, you have to think about the audience. And then I think you can start writing on a paper everything about this topic. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Everything comes in your mind, in your brain. It's the brainstorming phase where you decide what to include and what not to include in your book. I think what I did uh, was I created a mind map. So, you know, like uh, the, uh, in the center, so I took a page, just a blank page, and in the center I put the topic, like, okay, let's, I don't know, machine learning engineering, right? And then there could be branches, okay, what I can talk about this topic, I can talk about machine learning, I can talk about engineering, and then I kind of branch out from each of these things, right? And then you convert that into a proposal eventually. Yes. I think that you can group the similar topics that you have found into macro areas. For example, if you have found, I don't know, 40 arguments, you can group in 10, 12 macro areas, and this will become the chapter of your book. This is a general process in, instead, to tell the truth, I didn't follow this step. I, for the book Comet for Data Science, I had everything clear in my mind. I said, I start saying this, then this, then this, and finally this. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> and the editor uh, slightly changed something, but they accepted the, the proposal as uh, it was. Mm-hmm. 
And so then you you have this proposal, right? So you work some time on the proposal, and then the proposal is basically the table of contents, right? So you have the what are the sections, what are the chapters, and then I think you also describe the target audience. Yes, and also in some publishers you also have to provide the state of the art, uh-huh. similar works, the audience, but you must be very specific for the audience. For example, you must say if uh, in the audience is uh, entry level, uh, intermediate engineering, for example, uh, if there are some uh, requirements for uh, the audience, because an entry level book uh, is uh, simpler. Mm-hmm. You tell about the basics uh, and so on. Uh, for an intermediate uh, level, instead you, you have to know the topic very well because you assume some that the audience already knows some things. Okay. So then uh, there is a proposal which is hopefully accepted by the publisher, then you sign the contract, and then you should watch out for the things you described, right? So make sure it's manageable and you have time to actually enjoy life and sleep and other things. Like if it's one uh, chapter per month, then you need to write around one, two pages per day to finish it, right? Yes, but uh, the process is not simpler as it (laughs) seems because when you submit the first chapter, you write the second chapter, but after, for example, two weeks, you get the first chapter back with uh, uh, reviews. Reviews. And you have firstly uh, back from your editor to change uh, some editing aspects, and then from reviewers. If you wrote quite well, this is easy because the reviewers say simply, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you did some mistakes, then you need to work on chapter one and chapter two. And this, uh, this process overlaps with all the chapters. Well, I can see how it can snowball, right? Uh, <laughs> like when you write chapter four, you still have some unfinished comments from chapter one, <laughs> then chapter two, and then it's like yes. you, you go mad. Yes, but the idea is to keep you organized. If you leave at least, uh, I don't know, one hour per day, it could be sufficient to uh, deliver everything in time. But one hour is many time. That was fun talking to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks everyone for asking questions. And yeah, I think we can wrap it up and uh, everyone enjoy your weekend. Thank you, Angelica. Thank you. Bye everyone. Bye-bye.